Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. He's a returning guest to this podcast. If you want to check out the first episode with him, Professor and Egyptologist Aidan Dodson is back. And he was in the second episode where we talked a brief summary about the ancient Egypt, which I would highly recommend checking out. And just, we talked about this in the first episode as well, but what is it about ancient Egypt that captivated you as to study? I think when it, when it captivated me, I was first interested in it when I was about seven or eight. And I think it was originally sort of the um, morbid curiosity of a, of a child with books with skeletons and mummies and things in them. Mm. And then it then became more of a serious thing when I started reading more about it, reading about some of the history, the monuments, the archaeology and so on. So it just gradually came together as something which I felt I wanted to learn more about. And it then carried on from there, because I think a lot of people when they're that sort of age is when they get into their great sort of their great passions of their lives. Most people, if you count back to what you've always been interested in, well, it sort of kicks off around that kind of age. And then so from then onwards, it was simply that when you learn a certain amount, you want to learn more and more. And it just it becomes a it just becomes a. um, It's almost a roller coaster of it. And also the other thing I think is that. Uh, most people tend to find ancient Egypt an attractive thing, if you know what I mean, mm. in the sense that the language, literature, art, and also the, their general conduct of things is sort of feels positive. Although, as we'll probably talk about later on, what we're, of course, working on is their own propaganda, is the stuff which what they wanted people to think about them. But in in comparison with, say, the Assyrians, who quite liked talking about skinning people alive and and that sort of stuff, the Egyptians, although there is a certain amount of sort of smiting and sort of of that kind of thing, it seemed they seem to be less bloodthirsty in many ways than a lot of their contemporaries, or at least, again, that's how they present themselves. The Assyrians seem to want to present themselves as almost terrorists, Whereas the Egyptians all seem to always, even when they're sort of in imperial or colonial mode, want to present mm. themselves more in a paternalistic kind of way, rather than just simply ruling by, by force. And we've talked about this in the first episode, and we briefly talked about the pyramids as well. They didn't, didn't in fact kill their slaves after they finished the pyramids. Now, the, 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 Hollywood has got a lot to answer for when people's understanding or misunderstanding of history. You know, so many people tend to take the view of whatever a Hollywood version of it is must be true. Well, of course it mm. isn't. And so the key point about the building of pyramids is that the, the workforce, at least the permanent workforce, were all skilled artisans. 
who were working for pay rather than being um, in any way sort of forced. There probably were, um, during certain times of the year, people who are conscripted in to do a bit of uh, manual labour, for example, uh, farmers during the time that the fields were under the annual flood to move around big blocks. But fundamentally, it's all it was done by, by professionals. And that's really the case with all the building work in Egypt, because the only way you're going to be able to produce this kind of stuff is by skilled people. You cannot force people to do decent quality work. Um, so there's and killing them certainly doesn't help. <laughs> Yeah. So, so leaving aside any sort of any moral scruples, it's also a practical thing. You're far better off with a small group of well-trained, well-paid professionals to do these jobs than you are trying to use forced labour. We are going to talk, get into Farrows, which is the, today's topic. But I wanted to ask, where where do the myths that the Pharaohs killed their slaves after building the pyramids drop from? I mean, you, you said Hollywood, but is there more to it than just no. Hollywood? Not really, no. I think it's all just to do with. Again, I, I don't think any has ever been suggested in sort of in a in a in a, um, a serious source. There's, I think, there was so well. But going back to the ni- late nineteenth century, there were some thoughts when it was thought that the Valley of the Kings was a completely secret place, and therefore, to keep the tomb secret, would you then kill your workforce? But I'm not sure it, ever, it was never, I think it was anything which was ever put forward by, seriously by Egyptologists. It was simply people who are sort of fantasizing about what might happen. And there's also, I think, the, um, there's also a bit of biblical stuff in here, of course, that um, Egypt first appears in the Old Testament as the place where, where, the, where, the, uh, where the Israelites are. Uh, are enslaved by Pharaoh, and then there's the then there's the Exodus, and so on. So the idea of Egypt as a place of forced labour, of for, of slaves, mm. um, so, so I think I think is also part of it. So there's, there's a late nineteenth century animus, I suppose, which then is sort of then they extrapolate that into well, you know, well, well then you kill your workmen so to keep the secrets mm. and all those sorts of things. Which, of course, as we knew more at the moment, we started knowing more about these workmen. The fact they were all literate, they were all skilled artisans, and they they sort of lived in dynasties of their own alongside the pharaohs. That all became complete nonsense. However, that that kind of dramatic side of things found its way into fiction, and then picked up by Hollywood. Mm. And that's really, I think, that's really where where those sort of where those sort of myths come from. And the problem is that Hollywood. continues to perpetuate these kinds of myths which is uh, particularly annoying for Egyptologists because even when Hollywood or other media hire an Egyptologist as a technical advisor they normally completely ignore them Hmm. they'll they sort of there sort of have them there as sort of on the on the on the titles but a number of friends of mine have been advisors in for Hollywood things and they've said well no you're completely wrong but they've just been completely ignored because it works better as a movie so Hmm. It's boring, just no, John. It's more interesting if they just, yeah, they die, they die after the big film. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess, the problem that there's all that people, well, therefore, then when they watch these movies, which, although, which are fundamentally fiction, but sort of set in a historic setting, um, people tend to believe that's what really happened. Um, you know, and then the people who believe, you know, sort of think that the, the current series, The Crown, about the British royal family, is in some way a documentary, whereas large chunks are completely made up. Um, but, but but unfortunately, people are so sort of 
so un non-critical often nowadays mm. that if it's on tv or on the movie on the movie screen they'll say well hey that's oh that must be mm. true then and then you know, people like myself particularly if we get some of these people in as our students or attending lectures and so on we have to, you have to try and sort of dismantle all of this sort of superstructure mm. of of nonsense but then again don't you think that the movies also help that build an interest in Egypt that people want to find the truth about Egypt. Oh, absolutely. People... There's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the thing. There's always this very sort of... It's, it's the same that also goes for sort of the ancient aliens loonies as well. Yeah. <laughs> but on, on one level, you wish it wasn't happening. But on the other hand, it does introduce people who wouldn't otherwise be introduced to the ancient world to it. Hmm. And a number of them will then soon get over the... You know, Whatever, whatever, whatever the lunacies are, and then come to sort of to to do it re do it properly. In fact, there's there's one professional Egyptologist who started off um, in the um, say lunatic fringe camp, but then saw the light and you know, and, and came across. And there are others who certainly would admit that their first encounter with Egypt or the ancient world in general is through these more dubious Hollywood or novels or sort of the lunatic fringe books and, and, and YouTube videos and stuff like that and come forth. So yeah, I think at the bottom, you know, ultimately, the fact people have actually got actually have got some interest in it is something given the number of people nowadays who seem to show no interest or understanding of history. You know, you when, when you when you talk to people and you just allude to events you know, in your own in, in UK history or even American history from over in the States, um, and they just they look at you blankly, you know, you know who was Winston Churchill? Sorry, yeah. you know, I know who was President Roosevelt, all those sort of things. People have got there it so so at least if somebody, even if they think lunatic things about about historical figures, um, at least they may actually, you know, they at least at least heard of them. And okay, once you've heard it, once somebody's heard of somebody, you can then start telling actually what is the, what is mm. the truth about them. If they if you've got to start from scratch and explain who these people are. Um, then it becomes more problematic. So yeah, it's it's it's, it's, a, it's a there's a there's mixed feelings there about this stuff. And I think, but ultimately, I suppose that is, I would argue, probably for positive in the sense they even heard of these people. It's yeah. just a question of then having to sort of to to reeducate them somewhat in the uh, in what they know about these people mm. or, or places. And today's topic, if you've seen read the titles, we are going to talk about the pharaohs of Egypt. And when I when I suggested this topic to you, you mentioned that we don't read most of it is probably just theories. I mean, it's not fact that we should just look at these as speculations. Why why don't we know so much about the life of the pharaohs as we would like to? The fundamental thing is the amount of material that actually survives from Egypt to start with. You know, we have a tiny fragment of material as compared with one which once existed some periods you've got more than others but so first of all there's a simply there's a simply lack of material to start with it's like a um, a jigsaw puzzle with 99 of the pieces missing and of that one percent you've got half of them are actually badly damaged so you're looking at that sort of level of things and also if we're carrying on the jigsaw puzzle um, analogy, or is it a metaphor, I'm never sure which is the right, which it, which it is, that certain bits of that jigsaw, we've got more, more pieces of certain areas of it than others. So there's all that. That's the first issue. The second issue is actually the nature of the material to start with. Because the idea of you know, writing books of history, which are intended to set out what happened 
for posterity is completely unknown. The earliest sort of books of that sort that we are aware of are Greek writers of the fourth, fifth centuries BC. So the whole genre of the history, um, whether biased or not, but simply a thing presented for people to read later on and understand what happened in your time, just doesn't exist at all. So we, we so out of all the, that material which has been lost, it's clear that none of that would have been that. So what have we got left? Well, we have got a number, we've got, first of all, things which look a bit like history, which are inscriptions generally on temples, whereby the king states what he did. Um, but this is very much in the context of what a king should do. And of course, it's amazingly propagandistic. So, he'll only tell you about stuff which went right or nearly went or he could present mm. as going right so the possibility of any records of fate of lost battles and so on just simply aren't there so you've got you've got that level and a very similar kind of thing is what we sometimes call autobiographies of ordinary individuals or at least you know, high status individuals is that those autobiographies are not the kind of um sort of inward looking things which often modern autobiographies are, what they are is what we tend to call self-presentations. I, again, you're presenting yourself to the world and probably eternity because a lot of these things are in, you're in your tomb. It's to present to the world what you were, what you, how you wanted to be, be. And in those kinds of things, it's normally lots of cliches about being, you know, nice, you know, kind to animals, kind to your, fa your family. Also try to show how you were very, very much in with the king, given the king was the, was the you know, it was, 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 the, was the, the link between the divine and, and, and human beings. So often what you find in these autobiographies, when you have got sort of some kinds of facts, like, you know, possibly having taken part in a battle or whatever, it's all very much incidental to the big picture, which is just showing what a wonderful person you are. Mm. So there's, there's, there's that level of things. And then beyond that, all we've got are sort of beyond those sort of self-present, these presentational things, are a, is a, a, a small amount of day-to-day -day administrative material. And that is really only from a couple of places. It's just one of these cases where, where a, a rubbish dump of old admin documents Happen to be happens to, to survive to be found by archaeologists, and that and that's often some of the most useful stuff, because that's there isn't the the bias there would be in these other things, in the sense that if something that if you're making a note that something happened on a certain day in the in the work diary, well that's that that really is probably a fact that this 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 thing happened whatever it is. Um, but on the other hand, the problem with those things sometimes is that often you've got lots of year dates, but not which reign they apply to, because for the Egyptians, their dating system was the X year of King Y. And of course, if you're just writing out your, you know, your work diary or whatever, you know who's on the throne. So it's simply, you know, say, year seven. Unfortunately, you know, thousands of years later, when all this stuff has been sort of dumped, put in a rubbish dump and, you know, Whose year seven is that? So there's a huge question about whether putting things in the right order, whether that year seven is the same year seven as on another document and so on. And then with all on top of and all top of that, some things we can only really work out what happened 
relative to each other by looking at what levels things were found in an archaeological dig. So really just understanding whether some whether a king in where a king stood in history may be a question as to where material relating to him has been found on a site at the various sort of levels of stratigraphy. We do have a few king lists, but they're incomplete and they all cut off before we get to a really some of the really problematic periods as well. So we've got this huge sort of mass of stuff out there, but none of it can be really read sort of straight, if you like. It all has to be looked at, at from various angles. But also, no matter what you've got, you've got huge areas of, of we have, where we have no evidence whatsoever. And what we have to try and do is fill in those, the gaps. Because often we can work out on var from various grounds that you know, X king was here, Y king was there, because Perhaps we you know, refer to the, the Assyrian contemporary records and things. All those sort of things happen. But then you've got, OK, we've got these little bits. And to try and tell any kind of meaningful historical story, we have to sort of almost make things up. And that's what often people don't fully understand, I think, is that how much we have to make up and how much just one new archaeological discovery can change history quite literally because we'll have put together you know, something which is almost a working hypothesis in scientific terms and in, so in science so you put up together a hypothesis and you will test it by doing various experiments and sometimes the experiment will show that that hypothesis, that hypothesis was wrong you've got to start again it's the same with this that you'll come up with something which may actually be the working hypothesis for 50 or 60 years and then something comes out of the ground which shows that all to be totally impossible, at which point the whole thing collapses and you have to start again on, on that. And that's a thing which is very difficult to get across to people. People tend to think that history is history. They can't understand why, if you read a book on a certain period written 50 years ago, it bears no resemblance to what we would write now about that. About that particular you mentioned thing. that in the last episode that a book from two years from now may not be, even be relevant today. Just so, yeah, it's, it's all because just something, because I, all of this is fundamentally a working hypothesis. It's not actual fact. It's merely what a whole bunch of specialists who've been working on it for a number of years think possibly works. The trouble is that if that has all kinds of assumptions built into it, and if um, just one of those assumptions is proved wrong by a new discovery, for example, you know, a view that so and that somebody had died by a certain time, and then you find a document showing them still alive and kicking, you know, ten years after that point. Well, suddenly everything which depends on them dying at that point mm. all falls apart. So uh, yeah, there's a so that's that's a rather long long answer to your question. <laughs> but that's the reason why everything is very much yeah, very did... very much up in the air. Don't we have any outside sources like, let's say, the Romans? There are plenty of outside sources talking about the Romans. Do we have something like this with ancient Egypt, where, for example, like, like that XI had his battle, but it, in the, his sources it says he's won, but like outside sources. Yeah, we have a few. Costs. Yeah, we have a few, um, particularly the Assyrian records, which of course have the same kinds of issues with the Egyptian ones in the sense they're incomplete and are heavily biased. However, yeah, we've certainly got those, and the Assyrian data is very useful from about 
1000 BC and later. Then the Hittite records is quite good for probably what the 14th through to about 12th centuries. Um, and in fact, we have got some points where we've got both the Hittite and Egyptian versions of things. For example, the Battle of Kadesh under Ramesses II. Um, and, but once you get back beyond then, there's not a huge amount which directly links. You've got a few things which are sort of helpful-ish in the sense you find pottery from parts of Greece in Egypt, which can allow you to say that at least that particular phase of Egyptian of Greek culture is contemporary with that phase of Egyptian culture. But the trouble, unfortunately, that once you get beyond sort of about sort of like that, 1400 BC and so on, there's a lack of written material from a lot of the contemporary kind of cultures, which helps at all. So yeah, going back to 1400 BC, um, other cultures stuff can be useful. But before that, there's virtually nothing. But do we have like you mentioned the Hittites, let's say, and the Battle of Kadesh? Do we have do we have similar sources here, like, or do they contradict each other? Um, the, the the battle, the two the two sort of the Kadesh um, uh, records of the Hittites and the Egyptians, as far as the fact the basic facts are concerned, they sort of broadly agree. It's more to do with the spin they put on them. It's quite clear from reading both of them that neither side actually won a decisive victory. The big, I think, the, 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 although both of them, of course, in their own records claim that they won, but reading between the lines, it's fairly clear it was pretty well a draw, but with probably the Hittites having a slight, having, having an advantage in the sense that they retained um, control of the area where they've been fighting. Um, but on the other hand, they do seem to have received a fair, a fair sort of a quite a lot, quite a lot of losses. So, yeah, they, the, the two, the two brought, the two taken together allow us to understand neither, neither side is lying exactly, but they're just being, uh, putting, a, putting a different spin on things. It's a typical sort of um, situation where you've got international things. But yeah, those, the, the, they, they, they're not, they're not, neither side is making things up. It's just the way that it's the emphasis they put on things. Have you found that general sources when it comes to both outside and internal, external and internal sources that they contradict each other or have some sources actually aligned? Yeah, there's not much else, unfortunately. The, the Kadesh is really the one point where we've got, a, we've got a proper both sides versions of it. Um, when it, at other periods, you haven't really got that at all. Um, so it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's the exception almost that proves the rule that you can't really, um, I'd say, not until you get, even, even when you've got some of the Assyrian stuff, you haven't got the kind of level of detail from the Egyptian side. It's just around the time of the, with Ramesses II and the Hittites, you've got a quite a good balance of material from both sides. You haven't got that at other times. Mm -hmm. So with the Assyrians, you're using Assyrian data because there isn't any Egyptian data to, to, to put something together, rather than being able to really put the two together in any kind of meaningful way. So 
let's get to the pharaohs. Um, do you have an idea when the first pharaohs started to appear in Egypt? When the title and where does where does the title come from? Okay, the title, as we use it in most European languages, comes from the Bible because the the Old Testament calls the king of Egypt, or at least certainly the Book of Exodus does, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That comes from an Egyptian um, phrase, per a'a, the great house. And per a'a was originally the term used for the, um, for the palace. Um, so very much like when you talk about the White House said so-and-so, or Number 10 Downing Street said so-and-so, when it actually means the President of the United States or the UK Prime Minister or Buckingham Palace has, has announced that, meaning the Queen of the UK. It looks like it starts off purely as a way of referring to the king in sort of a very much a, um, a secondary way. So you're saying this is an official announcement by the king is that. Um, it, the first time we actually find it being used as a title for the king, or at least a way of directly referring to the king, seems to be about the middle of the 18th dynasty. So probably around about 1450 or so BC. Um, and then it then becomes quite common, but you don't really find it being used extensively to uh, actually as a title to say Pharaoh so-and-so until much, much later, probably, I'm not really sure what the very earliest time you can say it as a formal title is, but it's probably not until about the sort of seven or yeah. 700 or so, or 700 BC or later. But it's... So but the, the reason, but we tend to carry on using it because it's a convenient, it's a nice convenient title um, to use for rather than saying King of Egypt, Pharaoh. So strictly speaking, you shouldn't use the term Pharaoh prior to say about 15 or 1400 BC. However, Egyptologists always do um, because it's simply everybody recognises it's like it's a convenient word for King of Egypt. Like my latest book is called The First Pharaohs. But it's actually about the very first kings of Egypt around 3000 BC, over one and a half millennia before the term Pharaoh was even, even, even coined, which you could argue is an anachronism. However, in Eng if you're, if I, so the way I, way I look at it nowadays is in English, the word the, word, the English or German or French or whatever, because it's gone into pretty well every, every language, um, word pharaoh means king of ancient king of egypt leaving aside where what no where it was actually used so I've, I've got no i have no qualms about using it to simply refer to the term refer to uh, kings of egypt in general do you have any idea what they call themselves other than per a was that the general term per a before we no, before, but generally Paris? before that it, it's if you're simply calling somebody it's just his majesty or his person hmm. Hemf was the sort of with the way you'd refer to the current, the current monarch, very much in the way that you know, modern monarchs, it's his or her majesty normally. Um, they have a whole series of other titles, though. The probably the generic term for a king of Egypt is Nesu. Um, and in, a, in very short for, form, somebody could be called Nes, uh, the Nesu, let's say Tutankhamun or whoever you want to say. But there is a much broad, bigger, they have, they have a much bigger titulary. Uh, they actually have five separate names um, for most of Egyptian history, uh, which are one of which is the name which they're given at birth. Then there's four other ones which are added on to that as part of their full titulary. Um, 
which are sort of in some ways sort of almost mottos or sort of policy statements in some cases. It depends on the period we're talking about, and some of them can be actually be quite quite long and elaborate. Rather, well, I say rather more policy statements and actually names, but you have this fivefold titulary, as it's called. There is the Horus name, which links the king with Horus, who was the, um, the, pa the patron god of the Egyptian monarchy. Then there's the Nebti name, which links him with the, um, the goddesses of the two halves of Egypt, northern Egypt and southern Egypt. Neb, Nebet, uh, Nebet means lady, Nebti, two ladies. That's what that means. Then you've got one which is called the Golden Falcon name, which we don't quite understand what the Golden Falcon it refers to even is, or even that's the way that's the right reading of it. And then we have, um, the t have two final names, which are written in cartouches, which are the characteristic ovals in which all, which the most widely used names of the king um, are included. One we use to be called by the Latin term the prenomen, which again is something which is allocated to, to the king at their accession and is normally some kind of motto linking him with the sun god Ray. So pretty well all prenomina are something something Ray. And then finally we have the, what we call using the Latin term nomen for the other um, cartouche name, which is normally their birth name. And sometimes that birth name will be expanded by various epithets and so on, beloved of Ammon or you know, things like that. And, and whether or not a king simply calls himself or herself on odd occasions uh, simply by their birth name or by something with lots of bits added on depends on the period. And you can normally, if you find a, a cartouche of an otherwise unknown king, you can often roughly date them by the form of the name, because there are certain sort of, there's sort of certain, certain, certain trends you find at certain periods of Egyptian history. So, um, you know, so you can normally have a, have a fairly good idea of where an unknown person might actually fit if he's not on any list or any other uh, other things. What does the hieroglyphs, sorry if I didn't say that word, hieroglyphs tell us about the pharaoh? Well, so the hieroglyphs are simply the script which everything is written in. Um, so basically, I'm referring to are, inside a tombstone and yeah. Well, the every, every say basically you've got when just to sort of to as a gentle cover it. You know, there's the, the basic all the Egyptian writer script is basically hieroglyphs. They may which look like pictures, but actually are a you know are just an ordinary writing system. Um, and then there are there are various handwritten versions as well. So the, so the the, the formal hieroglyphs were, are normally restricted to um, monumental sources, you know, tombs, temples, and stuff like that. And then the then the then the written forms, um, which are called hieratic, and then there's later demotic, are what you would then write your you know, your shopping list with, or write a letter with, on things like that. And so it's it's amazing all our data, apart from as I was saying a little bit earlier on, where we sometimes have to derive stuff directly from the archaeology, you know, where things were found, or the typology of a statue or a coffin or something like that. Everything derives from the from hieroglyphic texts. And mm. um... What can what do they tell us about the government? I want to talk about the government of the pharaohs. So what what was what was a, what was a government of the pharaoh like? Right. Okay. 
it, again, it, it depends on the period to some degree, because you have to bear in mind that ancient Egypt lasts for over 3,000 years. Yeah. Um, and therefore, it's like saying, you know, what is, you know, what's what British gov- what how is gov- how is how is Britain governed? You know, are, are you t- which where are you talking? But yeah. unlike unlike in, mo- you know, in modern most modern states, where it almost seems to change every every couple of months how you how you're ruled, the basic picture seems to be broadly broadly the same for most of Egyptian history. The king is is the font of all power, and theoretically, everything is done by him, whether it be running the country, offering to the gods or whatever. Of course, in practice, that isn't the case. So what you know, so what we have, certainly at the period where we know most about things, which is particularly the period after about 1500 BC, which is where we have most documents about this, is below the king, you really have a sort of a, a split. In one, in fact, a three-way split effectively. First of all, there is sort of the religious side of things. So there's the various high priests of the various cults around Egypt. So that's that's mm. one side of things. Then you've and got... And we should probably mention that Charles wasn't the same as you see Charles today, right? Well, in, in the sense of all the, var- the various... How, serving the various gods, shall we say. Mm. That's the best way of putting it. So all the various gods have got their temples and so on. So there is that complex of organisation to, to do with those. But then if we're looking at really government, and of course it's quite important to recognise that the, the temples have quite a lot of economic power, so therefore they are an important part of, part of things, but that's more, but they're more so indirectly. The direct control of Egypt is, re- re- is through two sort of arms who are responsible to the king. And the key and the main one, what you might call the government in our terms, is an organisation headed up by the vizier or prime minister. Yeah. We, we, tend, we use the, the term vizier, which we've borrowed from Ottoman Turkish, simply as a convenient one, but it means prime minister. It's an ancient, ancient word is chati, um, but it, it's clear, it's the, it's the senior minister of the king, you know, whatever you want to call it, first minister, prime minister, whatever. And he... Um, is then responsible for everything else. He combines both government and judicial functions. So he's so he's in many ways he's both the um, prime minister but also the chief justice as well at the same time. Was it the same guy until he died, or was it was um, it chosen it's, out? They're, they're, well, it's, it's unclear. They are appointed by the king. Whether they, well, some of them we do know actually retire because they then move on to doing other jobs. Like one who was a who was who was a, who was a vizier, and then he then he sort of went on to become a high priest. But so it's it's a it's a job which is you're appointed to by the king, and I suspect in practice it depends how good you are at it, whether your health, how your health is, and so on. So a number we know live uh, sort of die in die in post. Others we know do actually retire. Or, or move across to other things. Um, sometimes you do actually get father-son successions as vizier, but it's clear it was never a hereditary job. It's simply that on occasion, the king decides to replace the father with the son. So it's, mm. And also, there's one thing I think about the vizierate is some periods, there's only one for the whole country, but other periods, I have a separate one for the north and south. Um, Egypt naturally splits into two around the area of Cairo um, and 
some and at some periods it's regarded as most efficient to have a separate prime minister for either half of the country in which case really complete that means that the only person who holds everything together ultimately is the king himself uh, but anyway below the vizier we then have a whole network of officials in charge of various government departments it's very much sort of you know what you might recognize the cabinet government today so you've got somebody who's the overseer of the treasury you know finance minister you've got a minister of agriculture a whole range of other of, of other functions like that it varies from time to time exactly who it is but you've got a fairly obvious functional um dividing line for the national government how do you how do you go on the get this job so imagine just a person student get this job right hmm. well the, well, the, 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 the um the pool from which you can recruit these people is fairly small because the number of people who are actually literate, and because you can't be, do any of these jobs unless you're literate, is pretty small. Mm. Um, probably at most 4% of the adult population could read and write, possibly that. It's very difficult to, to estimate precisely, and it also probably depends on where you are. Um, you know, in, in, in the capital areas, probably more of the artisans are able to read and write than than elsewhere but it's a fairly small thing but generally speaking it seems to be within a few senior families and where we can trace these senior families you'll have people who have who managed to produce you know a high a few high priests a vizier some overseers of the treasury so it's clear this there's a whole bunch there's a there's a, there's a ruling class effectively and you will bet and you will get it from there. So in some cases, you might actually have a family group holding a job for a number of, for a couple of generations. But it seems quite clear that there's never, they're never allowed to sort of become, everything become hereditary. There's always a point, whether it's because they simply, the family hasn't produced somebody vision to um, excuse, you know, that, no, sorry, you may be good, but we need, to, we need to bring some new blood in here. But of course, we've got, no, we haven't anywhere got any statements of that kind of thing. Mm. Um, so this is the reason why we, why, why I'm saying how we can, what we're trying to, all we can do there is say, all we know is that after vizier so-and-so, it wasn't his son or nephew who became next vizier, it was somebody of a completely different family. Why that happened, we can't normally tell. The only time we can sometimes tell if the person might have been sacked or or worse, um, is that sometimes in their tomb chapels you'll find that the name and title of that person have been have been mutilated because people produce the build have their tombs built while they're alive. If somebody's come along and damaged the name or fit and or figure in that tomb, it might suggest that this person, when they either had been sacked. Or worse, say, or, or, or even killed. You know, we, we have no idea. But was it, it often that somebody would get killed for this job, or was it? Well, we don't. We don't know. We have, we have absolutely no idea. All we all one is saying is that there are points where you've got somebody who ceases to be in a job, their tomb has been mutilated, but whether that means they were simply sacked and sent in exile, or whether they, yeah, we have no idea. This is this, this is the this is the biggest problem. That all we can say is that certain things certain things occurred but not the detail of what it is mm. we very rarely have any information of anybody being executed or murdered or anything else like that all one can do is just sort of you know is infer something infer something from the fact that the tomb has been uh, has been damaged um 
and that's 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 the frust that's the frustration of the of, of all this is to uh, and also sometimes you know, working out whether somebody even existed or not because you have a number of people with the same name because of some fairly common names in ancient Egypt, and there are a couple of situations where we're not quite sure which of whether there was two or three people of a given name holding a given job, because there's just because unless unless you unless you have a a mention of somebody the name of somebody's parents. You're not necessarily sure they're the same person as somebody else holding that job and the same with the same name, and parents aren't mentioned. Um, was it? You sort of answered this already. Was this a? Sh but was was this kind of a shit job, or was this a job that people wanted to get? Like this was a party um, to hold power in ancient Egypt. I think. I think there was. I think there was. A, there was a, a view that you know one should do what one could for the state. It was sort of. There was certainly there was something like that. But also, but it, but also it would recognize. But it's also interesting when you look at the um, there is a, there's a speech which the king gave to a newly appointed vizier, and one of the things that that actually does is says, look, this isn't this isn't a, this isn't an easy job. This isn't there. if you, that you're being appointed to do this because you, we want you to do good for the country. It's not because to you know to you know, anything else, and it, and it goes through all the things which they've got to do. And there's, there's one nice little bit which says, you know, don't you know this isn't this isn't actually this isn't a cushy job. Uh, it is not um, sweet at all. Indeed, it's as bitter as gall. So there's a view that these. You know, that, that I think that the that that the king is certainly pointing out to people who are being he's appointing that it isn't you know they're not it's not just simply an, an honorary thing it's there to do there to do do work of course i'm sure there were plenty of them who didn't do the work properly but at least the the, the theory behind it anyway was that was that um you know it was you were do, you were doing good for the state doing good for the king of course, you're well you're well rewarded for it. The king was the had, had complete control over everything, at least theoretically, anyway. And so, therefore, you know, a vizier would be given some night would be given a nice house, estates, um, and uh, given given royal workmen to produce his tomb and things like that. So there's a, but say so it's yeah. It, I, one gets the feeling that the administration was as good or bad as sort of most administrations are, you know, across across history. That sometimes you had people who were really good, and sometimes you had people who were really really bad. Um, and there are periods, of course, where we also have in, uh, um, day, um, indication of civil war and other kinds of conflict. So. But, the, but those are the ones which we, of course, aren't as well aware of because that's the sort of thing which, you know, the, part, the protagonists, particularly people who win, want to um, to sort of suppress. You know, so we have where we do know of um, power struggles between sons and things like that for the throne and stuff. It's all remarkably by accident that we've got this kind of data, and most of the time there is an attempt. You know, in the in the, in the material which survives, to um, present everything as chugging along very, 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 very satisfactorily and stuff. Um, but of course, we know that you know, in human history shows us plenty of times that isn't what happens. However, the powers that be normally want to make it appear as everything, you know, everything is okay, even if it isn't. Do we know if there's corruption occurred often or not? I imagine that was frowned upon by if that was for now. There is a trouble, again, by saying there's only a pit, there's a few bits of some documents which do 
indicate this for certain periods. But it's again to use the, the accident of the preservation of the documents. Um, so you know, we, we have a few odd bits and pieces. The trouble with this kind of thing, when you've got a limited amount of material, is how representative of other periods one thing we have. So if we've got something which is talking about um, embezzlement, robbery of tombs, all those sort of things, is that because that period at that particular point in time was particularly bad or simply because we happen to have the documents from it. Like we only have one piece of formal evidence for the murder of a pharaoh, Ramesses III. Mm. And that's just simply because in the 19th century, a jar of papyri was found by some locals um, who then sold them to a collector rather than using them for, for, to light their fire with, which was quite, would have been quite possible. Um, and therefore we have that, 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 that particular bit of an archive surviving so we know about the murder of Ramesses III but actually we've only got half but we know from what document we've got we've only got half the documents because there were clearly two jars because the Egyptians tend to use jars as things to file papyrus scrolls in that we that we only have the contents of one jar and there's another jar which is missing which is probably was destroyed or in that particular case, the papyri were used for, for lighting somebody's cooking fire in the 19th century. So, you know, we get very excited about the fact we've got the uh, trial records of the assassination of Ramesses III. But the reason, but we don't know whether or not how common it was for a king to be assassinated. Um, not like the Roman emperors, where fifty percent of them was, was absolutely. So we have so, so we don't know. We know there, there's a couple of kings where later, where then, like with talking about some officials, their names would hammered out of the records, which might suggest that they could have died unnaturally. And in fact, we've also got two kings who were killed in battle. We know that because we've got looking at their mummies, we've got the wounds on the bodies to be able to see that they clearly died in battle. Um, but again, did other ones die in battle? You know, all we can you can do is sometimes when you see somebody's only got a very very short reign, that might suggest that they could have died in battle, or did they die of disease? Could they have been assassinated? We just don't know. You know, the you, you've normally got an assumption that if a king had a very long reign, he probably died, you know, of old age or disease in his bed. But you know, that's that's again an, an assumption. Um, and so the number of the number of bodies where we can actually put a finger on the cause of death is very very small even with sort of you know modern cat scanning techniques so we talked a little bit about the government now and how 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 that works but what about the pharaoh himself how did how was it not like uh, how did the pharaoh become a pharaoh was it chosen was it the heritage or was it some right as far as we can tell and this is again because there, there is no document which explains how you become a pharaoh. But what we can, what seems to be the case is that the person who is the heir to the throne is the eldest son by the most senior wife. Egyptian kings normally have more than one wife, and generally speaking, from the new kingdom onwards, one of them is has the title of king's great wife, Hemetnesu Weret. Which, may, which in our terms is the queen rather than just simply, you know, a concubine or whatever you might, might want to call, call her. And so it looks as though, at least as far as possible, where there was an eldest son by the senior wife, he was it. 
but also it looks so there is sort of a number of sort of further phases which are involved. It looks as though that 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 particular heir was presumably when they were old enough, they were old enough probably to survive because with infant mortality, I suspect that you're, until somebody is in a, in a year or so old, there's sort of concern as to whether they'll survive. Once they've got to a certain um, age, they're then presented to the court and formally proclaimed the heir to the throne. And then the final step was that when the king died, his legal successor carried out the um, burial ceremonies so it appears to be a three-stage thing and what and, for, and when you've got somebody who is a royal son by the king's great wife that is presumably automatic but what but but because but you if you don't have an eldest son by the by the by the by a chief wife that mechanism of having the the two further stages of proclamation of being heir and then the carrying out of the burial mm. does actually mean you can then slot other people in. So therefore, if the king has no surviving son, that proclamation, he can probably, he can then proclaim somebody who he, who else there is. Whether that is somebody who is the next genealogically or whatever, we have no idea. Could they proclaim the vizier, for example? Well, well there's a couple, there is a, certainly occasion where um, well, King Horemheb at the end of the 18th dynasty, he is succeeded by his vizier because Horemheb appears to have no children. So therefore he appoints his, you know, his, his, his number two effectively to be the heir to the throne. Um, and there's probably other situations as well where that sort of thing happens. For and as far as the burial bit is concerned, in the tomb of Tutankhamun, for example, there is a unique scene of his successor, King I, carrying out his funeral. And one suspects the reason why that unique scene is there is because that was the one legal basis on which I was claiming the throne on Tutankhamun's death, carrying out the, um, the burial ceremony. Because all that goes back religiously to Horus, the son of the death god Osiris, burying his father and therefore inheriting his mantle as king on the earth. So that looks like what there is no document which tells us that is what the constitution or you know, if you like in Egypt is. But because we have a couple of kings who do record that presentate a presentation to the, the court, that one should suspect that is part of the normal sequence of events. And also we, when we look at kings whose parentage is, is certainly known, normally they are indeed the eldest surviving son by the senior wife. So putting those bits of evidence together gives us what we think might've been the constitution. Mm. Um, but again, it's, that's, that's, again, that's the working hypothesis anyway. Um, and there are other situations clearly where it would be where, where you've got some kind of revolution or coup or something else. But I think the but the useful point I think there is that the that even if you are have sort of killed your predecessor in you know in, in, a, in a coup, providing you've actually buried them properly, you're probably you're probably legally just about okay. Um, that, that's say that's that's what we think happens. To, to the situation and certainly the you know the if you look in more broad terms at what how Egyptian society worked the idea that you were, you succeeded 
in your job, whatever it was, by your eldest son, and also your eldest son's final duty as an eldest son is to bury his parents properly. That all, that all, that, you know, it, the, the picture, it seems to work, but one can't say that's the fact. All one can say is that's the working hypothesis of how you become a pharaoh. But what, I want to compare the Ottomans here. What happened to the other brothers? Because in the Ottoman Empire, it was, it was quite common, as brutal as, as it sounds, murder their brothers to become the sultan. Was this a case in Egypt as well, that they murdered their brothers, or did they get other governmental positions? Yeah. We, I don't, there's no evidence that the, that kind of brother, uh, brother murder took place. Um, we have a number of individuals who are king's brothers who have actually got other jobs. Um, so some of them did 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 get that, but before, was there jealousy of, for between the brothers that well, he I, I should be the pharaoh, not him? Well, I, I think, I think the thing is, I think it's not generally speaking. I don't think uh, because if you've got if you've got a, if if we're right about what the constitution said, it's quite clear who is you know the eldest son is it. And his brothers have, you know, unless there's something nasty happens to their brother, they're it. So I don't get any worse than in some modern monarchies where you, most you know, the younger children are perfectly normally quite happy that you know their their big brother is the, is going to be the king, and probably in many cases perfectly rather happy he's going to be because it's, you know, it's not necessarily a a, a good job, but so a number of them do seem to have do have jobs. But but only, interesting. We only really know about them being both royal sons and holding these other jobs um, after the end of the 18th dynasty. Prior to that, you don't. But prior to that, the royal family is a much much lower profile thing. Once Ramesses the first comes to the throne, and he's bringing, and he's a new. They're a new family, no royal blood whatsoever. They. Tend, they seem to make much more of a more of a thing of there being a royal a thing called a royal family, so you know king lots of you know, king queens sons daughters all that are really sort of shown quite big time on temple walls and so on and because of that we know some of these royal sons then go on to having you know being being high priests of this army generals it tends to be priesthood or the army tends to be what these royal sons tend to be doing. Again, not too different from what happens in most sort of uh, modern monarchies. They don't tend to go into, into government or the civil service per se. They tend to sort of go into the army or, or religion. Um, prior to that, however, before the end of the 18th dynasty, the royal family is a much, much smaller thing. Generally speaking, it's the king. The queen is occasionally shown. Royal daughters are occasionally shown, but not royal sons at all. What happened with the daughters? Can you talk about them for, for me? So, later on, again, or we can say later on, is that they can marry into the priesthood, they can marry civil servants, they can marry soldiers. But because before the end of the 18th dynasty, we have such lit the, the, the royal families at such low low profile the king has got a massive profile but pretty well everybody else hasn't we don't really know enough about the people to what as to what quite what they're doing and it may be that during that prior to Ramesses the first taking over that if you weren't the king and or the crown prince you basically didn't use royal titles you simply sort of 
you, you know you went you, you didn't lose them but you didn't you weren't you didn't present yourself as such and we, there are a few people who we've got the two we've got the tombs of they never mention their parents in their tombs whatsoever and one wonders whether some of those are actually royal children who are not you know who who because of what the what the, what seems to be the general approach at this stage they don't tell you that they've just become they've just become officials or priests and you know nobody knows it. it's only it's only later on say after after Ramesses the first and later on that having royal blood becomes a big thing that in the third intermediate period you get people who on their coffins or in their tombs will give you a long long genealogy taking you back to how they've got some royal blood so royal blood seems to matter from a certain point onwards but before that unless that royal blood happens to make you king nobody gets too worked up about it so i think there's a difference in there's there's a very clear sort of dividing line between the two but from the point of view of and certainly the very fact that once you once we do know about all these royal sons there's no evidence of them being bumped off i can't suggest, i can't see that they're likely to have been bumped off earlier on now it's well known that the pharaohs were considered gods themselves, but how, were they proclaimed god once they were pharaoh, or, or was that after winning a battle, or how, how were you proclaimed that god? That's an interesting one, because exactly what, it, okay, part of it depends on what we mean by god. Because the in the Egyptian is, sense, sense, like well, we know. This is, I think this is the problem, but what, because in, in, in ancient Egyptian, there is what, there's a word, nature which simply means a divine being of some description and can apply to everybody from the king of the gods through to some little minor minor genius. So it simply means that you are of the divine realm. So in our terms, God tends to imply somebody with something with power, with divine power, where it doesn't actually mean that. It simply means that you are belonging to the the the, the, the divine the the realm, the realm of the of the divine, rather than you being a god in the sense of being, you know, you know Zeus, Jupiter, that sort of thing. So, so it's not like the god up there that we. Yeah, exactly. And that's the problem that we know that the king, one of his titles, is the good god. Um, you know, so he's certainly of the divine realm, but whether he is a god in the same way that Ammon is a god, Osiris is a god, is another slightly different thing. He certainly regarded as being, and he certainly has divine blood in that um, theoretically on the, at the point of, of his conception, his earthly father has sort of, well, Ammon or Ray has sort of become incarnate in his earthly father so that the child who is being conceived has got divine blood, if you like. But what that actually means in terms of what means in functionally, what being a you know, a nature means is more of a problem. We can't compare it to today, to like religion today. Like it's not like the priest worshipped the, the king. Yeah, well, that's, that is that is the second bit. So there's no real evidence of the king himself being an object of a cult. However, his spirit, the royal car, can be regarded as having 
a cult. So it's not it's not the it's not the it's not the it's not the bloke sitting on the throne who is the who is, but there, but, but there is divine essence to him who can be worshipped in the form of a statue, and that becomes particularly common in in the in the provinces, particularly in Nubia, the area south of Aswan, where you do have. Very much in the, as in as in had in, in the during the Roman Empire, where a Roman emperor could be deified in somewhere like Britain or Gaul or somewhere like that. In Nubia, a king can be fully deified, and you can tell that because you have scenes of the king worshiping himself, or at least worshiping what appears to be himself, but is actually a divine aspect of himself. Um. So pretty much how you look in your mirror and you say, I'm great, I'm the best. Yeah, I think well, I think it also probably depends on the individual king as well. I suspect some of them take their divinity very much with a pinch of salt, that they just sort of, okay, that comes with the job. You know, I need, I need to sort of look a bit sort of, you know, but actually he or occasionally she doesn't really think they're, they're divine, but they're just, that's part of the job. Whereas others, I suspect, do, do take it much more seriously and did sort of feel themselves more more godlike. Did the did the general population believe that they were gods? Well, 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 just... again, again, it goes back to what we mean by the word god. They believed that they were they were of the divine realm, so they were natural. But I just use that... the god to simplify, I suppose. Yeah, it is. Yeah. So, so whether but, 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 but whether they actually regard them as gods who could actually sort of you know change, you know, you know decree things and sort of and nature obeyed, one doesn't really know. Um, so I think that's the problem there. Is is understanding what we mean by what we, we, the term we. The Egyptian term nature covers such a wide variety of things, which we would include, you know, in Brit in sort of English terms, that term nature includes God, angels, saints, um, you know, beati beatif you know, people have been beatified by the Pope and all that kind of level. So we've got a, such a huge range of things me meaning that. And whether or not, if you were talking to an ancient Egyptian, and try to get him or her to narrow it down. You know, if you say, well, we have these categories, which you just have the word nature for, whether they would be able to identify what that is, or simply they would say, well, no, sorry, he's just of the divine, you know, he's of the divine world. So it's a very difficult, it's, it's probably one of the most difficult things to get your head round as far as Egyptian kingship is concerned. What do we, what quite do we mean by it? And it's just trouble. We just haven't got, it's just the Egyptians haven't got the level, the range of levels of divinity in there, in that word, for a word that we do. And that's just, that's, that's one of these problems whenever you're trying to get your head around a, you know, any kind of thing in a different culture where you've got different words, you know, what, yeah. one, one English word can be 10 different words in another language yeah. and, and vice versa. And that's what the problem is we, we've got here. So let's say, because pharaohs as well, it's, we know that they were chosen, could be quite young from 11 years of age, some of them. So how easy was it for a pharaoh, if you were young, to become a puppet pharaoh like under the vizier's hand? Probably quite easy, I would suspect, um, because you know, we've got a number who are coming to the throne very, very young. But... Um, 
I think I think again it would again it depends. And what's that necessarily a bad thing to be done public? No, no, what I'm saying it's just one thing. I think it depends. It almost depends on the situation. Who is actually still alive? You know, because if it's your mother is acting as the, as your regent, which is often one of the default positions. If if your mother's still alive, um, you will they she hopefully will be a more sort of um, help you on your way to adulthood um, more than others. But again, if there is no, but if you haven't got that, again, it depends on how, um, on, on, the, on the approach, um, whoever is acting as, as, uh, as regent is. Interesting, interesting the, the vizier would not be the regent. The regent would be somebody else. The vizier, you know, it's, it's, it's um, and for example, under Tutankhamun, which is where we've got one of our best bits of information, is the actual regent was an army general, Horemheb. Um, the viziers were simply they then worked for worked for the regent. Um, so, but again, we, talk, we talked a bit about corruption, but was it easy that he would that I'm in power even when you grow of we age? Have, we have no idea at all. We got, again, because there's no there are no records which really suggest that. Although we do the the one the one thing we do have a possible have some suspicion of is Tawasret, who was the Queen Dowager at the end of the um, 19th dynasty. She was the regent for King Siptar, but Siptar um, dies just about the point where he's about to become old enough to become um, independent king. And also his names are erased in his tomb, which leads one to suspect that Tawasret might have got rid of Siptar just at the point she was going to have to give up power. And because, and what further underlines that is that the moment Siptar is dead, Tawasret proclaims herself as female pharaoh and carries on using the regnal years of Siptar, suggesting that she is simply, um, she might have done something, she might have got rid of Siptar um, um, to be able to, to hold on to power. So, yeah, that's and also another sort of not 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 level of that level of violence, but for example, Hatshepsut, um, she was regent for Thutmose the third, and about the point where Thutmose the third is coming of age, she proclaims herself female pharaoh alongside him, and then rules as joint pharaoh with him for the next um, next few next fourteen years or so. Um, so clearly, there may have been some individuals who didn't want to give up power. Um, and I'm sure there were probably other ones. As I said before, we just cannot, we just haven't got the, the nature of the records as such. We just don't know uh, where that kind of thing might have happened. So we just occasionally have suspicions. And so with, with Tawasra, there's quite a strong suspicion there. Um, do we have a, in, in the Roman Empire, we do have quite a fair share of mad emperors. To, to pick from. Do we have this case in ancient Egypt that we had some mad pharaohs to again, that no, way? Again, no evidence. We have, we have no evidence at all. The nearest you might do is if, if those who would argue that Akhenaten was, um, was, 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 less, was less than sane. But that's, that's the one example. I can't think of anything whereby we would have any, any basis, any, any, any way of knowing that. Because again, the, 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 we, we, have, we haven't got things like Suetonius and the lot uh, and um, and those kinds of writers to tell us about what happened. Um, so the answers have no idea. Well, I suspect we probably we must have had. There must have been some who were who were who were who were less who were less um, sane than others. But we have no idea which ones they were. How? What was the role of a woman in 
as in the governmental pharaohs were was was the important one was she just there to be produced on here what what I mean, you talked about somebody joined, was joined here but yeah, what, what, they, how much power did, she, did a woman have in and she did it, it, dep- it depends on the depends on the period so we do know that a number of women acted as regents for um young young ch- young children so clearly when they were regents they had full powers of a pharaoh um as far when you haven't got that situation it very much depends on the period mm. and during the 18th dynasty the great royal wives the chief wife seems to be particularly prominent um possibly owing to the fact that the sort of uh, that when king sikenin ray was killed in battle he's one of those who we know is killed in battle because he's got a number of axe holes in his head which like, gives it away um that his wife ahotep seems to have been the person who then rallied the egyptians after the death of the king um and possibly even led them in battle because mm-hmm. in her in her her mummy on her mummy were found three golden flies which were the top military award for in ancient e- in, in that period in ancient egypt which is you know, never found normally on a on a woman and also there is a text um from after her death, I think it is, or somewhere sort of later in her life, where she is very much praised as almost like the saviour of Egypt. So she certainly did that. And then probably as a result of her of her sort of her position in this, a number of the rest of her immediate successors as queen um, also had very high status. Um, queen Ahmose Nefertiri, for example, both in life and also after death, she became a, 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 a goddess of the dead. And then later on, you've got Queen T under Amenhotep the Third, Nefertiti under um, Akhenaten, and so on, all of whom have a much much higher profile than most other queens. And we can see that in part because normally kings are shown on their own on you know carrying out things, but in those cases, they're often shown with their wives not only with them, but on almost the same scale as them, because Egyptian art, you're standing. So I think it depends on, it depends on the period. During the 18th, it seems to have a lot of strong women hold, quite often holding the, uh, the, 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 the post of, of, of King's great wife. Also, another thing which, again, from the 18th dynasty, say where we've got most of the data for this kind of thing, is that the queen often also held the title of God's wife of Ammon, uh, the god's wife of the chief god initially that is a subsidiary title of the king's great wife is later spun off as a separate title held by the often the eldest daughter of the king and again we can't we don't have you know, anything which tells us in detail about this but the implication is that the god's wife is effectively the um, female opposite number of the high priest of Amun, and may originally have been um, set up as a as a post to provide the king with somebody from his own family in sort of co- in, in with this sort of college of, 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 of priests, so that the queen could almost sort of sit on be, 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 be sit on the board of the key priests of Amun by virtue of that, and then later on that that title is then spun off, and the god's wife is an independent entity again presumably act and from what we can see is she is the female opposite number to the high priest and that carries on right the way through until the late third intermediate period 
where we suddenly don't have any high priest of Amun at all. And for the rest of, and for the next couple of centuries, it's the head of the Ammon cult is the god's wife, um, a woman. So again, as with so many things, it depends on period and exactly what sort of, you know, what, what functions we're talking about. But at the end, so the god's wife is an extremely important figure um, and uh, yeah, effectively ends up as being the ruler of southern Egypt. Would you say that the Egyptian, Egyptians were uh, ahead of the time with, when it comes to women and rule or uh, compared to other civilizations at the time? Or would you say it was similar? I think, yeah. I think if, one, if one looks across the ancient world, FEMA, the legal position of women in, in ancient Egypt is higher than anywhere else. It's certainly higher than Greece or Rome. The very fact we actually have a number of female pharaohs, not many of them, but we do have them, indicates that the concept of a woman ruler was not, you know, it was, was something which was acceptable. Um, you can tell that to the Americans. <laughs> yeah, and then say, and also we have things like, 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 like the, the existence of the God's wife, ship of a moon as well. So clearly, clearly we have not got gender equality um, but compared with what the, the position is um, in most of the other ancient works, it's also worthwhile noting the very sort of upfront role goddesses play in Egyptian religion as well. That you know, Isis as the uh, to, to, uh, ensuring the resurrection of her brother um, Osiris. Um, there's, there's a lot of there's, there's a lot, the, 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 the goddesses are not just simply sort of um, not just simply um, decorative. They've all they've got a certain amount of personality and some of them are actually quite dangerous as well. Mm. So there's a, certainly a feeling that women, although they've, they're clearly they're, they're, they're clearly not fully equal, they're far more equal than, than anywhere else in the ancient world. And probably they have a better status than they have in, in certain parts of the, of the modern world as well. And, and now I want to get into the point where we talked about, and again, I would like to add that this is probably just speculations, but if you have an, an idea that what a day-to-day -day life was like for Faraday, did he have any privacy at all or how did that work? Again, don't really know. Um, one says one would suspect that a lot of their lives were sort of was sort of certainly surrounded by protocol and things. You know, very much life. You think about sort of the Louis the Fourteenth and that and that sort of era of, um, of of European monarchs. So one suspect, and also there's a certain given they had a religious role. I'm sure there were various things they had to do at certain times of the day. Um, but again, it probably depended on the individual king. Um, and it's what's what, and you know, somebody like Thutmose the Third, who spent most of his time fighting wars, clearly wasn't doing all that kind of stuff. He was happy. He was so. I suspect it was again down to the individual. There were the, there was the king. There were kings who just who really sort of believed in their sort of divine status and everything else, and did everything. Others who probably um, did absolutely the absolute minimum and got people to deputise for them, and some who didn't want to do it at all, like Thutmose the Third, just cleared off with the army uh, to play, you know, to, to play at soldiers for most of the year. So, um, so again, I think it depends on the individual. There's, they clearly have they're, they're theoretically the thing is they're theoretically in charge of everything. They're theoretically supposed to be in charge of all the temples of Egypt. You know, so everything is. Which of course, in practice, that's not not done. In the temples' case, that's all that's all delegated to the high priests and the rest of the priesthood. 
Um, most of the government is then delegated to their various sort of um, members of the cabinet. So I think it depends on the individual. Say so some of them, I suspect, were did did spend half their time poncing around doing you know doing doing ritual stuff, but others were basically said you know sorry I'm not sorry I'm going I'm going hunting see you next week kind of mm -hmm. thing. So but of course if that's a great thing is if you are the you know absolute absolute ruler. Um, you can decide not to be an absolute ruler and just go and sort of do what you want. So, again, again I suspect it, it massively um, depends on on the on the individual holding the office, and also probably what's been done by their immediate predecessors. Because again, if we, I think that if one just looks at more modern medieval and to modern courts in in Europe, one particular individual can sort of set up how how it's all supposed to be done until. You know, three or four generations later, somebody else turns around and says, "No, I'm not doing. It. I'm not doing this. I'm, you know, we're going to do something completely different." So, I think that's how it probably worked. And of course, we talked about the pyramids again in the previous episode. And whose whose pharaoh's idea was it that I'm I'm better than the value of the king? So I'm going to be like complete for pyramid. I'm going to have my own graveyard. I'm not going to share with anyone. Um. So. Difficult to know because because how far these processes work because now for example the Valley, the Valley of the Kings the you know the, the existence of that is, is is prefigured by the fact that a number of earlier kings hadn't actually placed their burial chambers underneath their pyramids uh, they had that they had had them separate from that so very difficult to very difficult question to answer really because I, I suspect there was a degree of you know, individual um, King's choice about what what happened, but a lot of it, I think, they obviously followed followed what would what had been done by their predecessor. Um, I just covered most of what the Pharaoh's day-to-day life was, and I, again, before Joe, I would like to add that this is mostly speculation. That don't take this for for fact necessarily, just with a but with a grain of salt. And thank you so much for coming back. You're always welcome back to this podcast. Um, before you go, do you have anything you would like to promote on the social media? Well, yeah, share? I'll just, just to say that I have got a book which has just come out, which I'm one of the editors of, A History of World Egyptology, um, published by Cambridge University Press. That came out a few weeks ago. Oh, congratulations. Ten, it took, took nearly 10 years to produce um, because what we were doing was it's 23 different authors all adding into that. So that, that, that came out a few weeks ago. And I have got a book called The First Pharaohs coming out in October, which I think I mentioned earlier on. And that one is coming out from American University in Cairo Press. I like a lot, of, a, lot of my work, a lot of my books. And that, as its sort of name implies, talks about the earliest um, kings of Egypt from about 3000 BC down to about uh, 2600 or so. So it's about the first sort of 400 years of Egyptian history in there. Not only just the history of what's going on during their reigns, but also the historiography, i.e. how we know what we know about them. So some of the things we've picked up on, we've, we've touched on during this podcast about the questions of how do we know things? What, what bits of data um, have we have we put together? And how do we sort of put all that together? And I think it's I think these early dynastic period particularly is an, a very good test case for that because you know what we have is remark is is remarkably diverse and extremely fragmentary. So 
I think that whole book is a quite a good example of the sort of stuff I've just been talking about um, during this podcast. Thank you so much for coming back again. And uh, my name is Adam. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find podcasts. We are also on Instagram under world.h12, YouTube, wherever you can find us. We are probably there. Um, my name is Alan, and I'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.